Chapter thirty four of the Breaking Point by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dick had written his note and placed it where Bassett would be certain to see it. Then he found his horse and led him for the first half mile or so of level ground before the trail began to descend. He mounted there, for he knew the animal could find its way in the darkness where he could not. He felt no weariness and no hunger although he had neither slept nor eaten for thirty-odd hours, and as contrasted with the night before, his head was clear. He was able to start a train of thought and to follow it through consecutively for the first time in hours. Thought, however, was easier than realization, and to add to his perplexity he struggled to place Bassett and failed entirely. He remained a mysterious and incomprehensible figure, beginning and ending with the trail. Then he had an odd thought that brought him up standing. He had only Bassett's word for the story. Perhaps Bassett was lying to him, or mad. He rode on after a moment, considering that, but there was something, not in Bassett's circumstantial narrative, but in himself, that refused to accept that loophole of escape. He could not have told what it was. And then, with his increasing clarity, he began to make out the case for Bassett, and against himself the unfamiliar clothing he wore, the pad with the name of Livingston on it, and the sign R.X., the other contents of his pockets. He tried to orient himself in Bassett's story. A doctor! The devil's irony of it! Some poor hack losing sleep and bringing babies, peddling pills, leading what Bassett had called a life of usefulness. That was a career for you, a pill peddler. God! But underlying all his surface thinking was still the need of flight, and he was continually confusing it with the earlier one. One moment he was looking about for the snow of that earlier escape, and the next he would remember, and the sense of panic would leave him. After all, he meant to surrender eventually. It did not matter if they caught him. But like the sense of flight, there was something else in his mind, something that he fought down and would not face. When it came up, he thrust it back fiercely. That something was the figure of Beverly Carlyle stooping over her husband's body. He would have died to save her pain, and yet last night—no, it wasn't last night, it was years and years ago, and all this time she had hated him. It was unbearable that she had gone on hating him all this time. He was very thirsty, and water did not satisfy him. He wanted a real drink. He wanted alcohol. Suddenly he wanted all the liquor in the world. The craving came on at dawn, and after that he kicked his weary horse on recklessly, so that it rocked and stumbled down the trail. He had only one thought after the frenzy seized him, and that was to get to civilization and whiskey. It was as though he saw in drunkenness his only escape from the unbearable. In all probability he would have killed both his horse and himself, in the grip of that sudden madness, but deliverance came in the shape of a casual rider, a stranger who for a moment took up the shuttle, wove his bit of the pattern, and passed on, to use his blowpipe, his spirit-lamp, and his chemicals in some prospector's paradise among the mountains. When Dick heard somewhere ahead the creaking of saddle-leather and the rattle of harness, he drew aside on the trail and waited. He had lost all caution in the grip of his craving, and all fear. A line of loaded burrows rounded a point ahead and came toward him, picking their way delicately with small, deliberate feet, and walking on the outer edge of the trail, 
after the way of pack animals the world over. Behind them was a horseman, rifle in the scabbard on his saddle, and spurs jingling. Dick watched him with thirsty, feverish eyes as he drew near. He could hardly wait to put his question. "'Happen to have a drink about you, partner?' he called. The man stopped his horse and grinned. "'Pretty early in the morning for a drink, isn't it?' he inquired. Then he saw Dick's eyes, and reached reluctantly into his saddle-bag. "'I've got a quart here,' he said. "'I've travelled forty miles and spent nine dollars to get it, but I guess you need some.' "'You wouldn't care to sell it, I suppose?' "'The bottle, not on your life.' He untied a tin cup from his saddle, and carefully poured a fair amount into it, steadying the horse the while. "'Here,' he said, and passed it over. "'But you'd better cut it out after this. It's bad medicine.' You've got two drinks there. Be careful." Dick took the cup and looked at the liquor. The odor assailed him, and for a queer moment he felt a sudden distaste for it. He had a revulsion that almost shook him, but he drank it down and passed the cup back. "'You've traveled a long way for it,' he said, and I needed it, I guess. If you'll let me pay for it—' "'Forget it,' said the man amiably, and started his horse. "'But better cut it out. First chance you get, it's bad medicine.' He rode on after his vanishing pack, and Dick took up the trail again. But before long he began to feel sick and dizzy. The aftertaste of the liquor in his mouth nauseated him. The craving had been mental habit, not physical need, and his body fought the poison rebelliously. After a time the sickness passed, and he slept in the saddle. He roused once, enough to know that the horse had left the trail, and was grazing in a green meadow. Still overcome with his first real sleep, he tumbled out of the saddle and stretched himself out on the ground. He slept all day, lying out in the burning sun, his face upturned to the sky. When he wakened it was twilight and the horse had disappeared. His face burned from the sun and his head ached violently. He was weak, too, from hunger, and the morning's dizziness persisted. Connected thought was impossible, beyond the fact that if he did not get out soon he would be too weak to travel. Exhausted, and on the verge of sunstroke, he set out on foot to find the trail. He travelled all night, and the dawn found him still moving, a mere automaton of a man, haggard and shambling, no longer willing his progress, but somehow incredibly advancing. He found water and drank it, fell, got up, and still, right foot, left foot, he went on. Sometime during the advance he had found a trail, and he kept to it automatically. He felt no surprise and no relief when he saw a cabin in a clearing, and a woman in the doorway watching him with curious eyes. He pulled himself together, and made a final effort, but without much interest in the result. "'I wonder if you could give me some food,' he said. "'I have lost my horse, and I've been wandering all night.' "'I guess I can,' she replied, not unamiably. You look as though you need it, and a wash, too. There's a basin and a pail of water on that bench." But when she came out later to call him to breakfast, she found him sitting on the bench, and the pail overturned on the ground. "'I'm sorry,' he said dully. "'I tried to lift it, but I'm about all in.' "'You'd better come in. I've made some coffee.' He could not rise. He could not even raise his hands. She called her husband from where he was chopping wood off in the trees, and together they got him into the house. It was days before he so much as spoke again. 
So it happened that the search went on, Wilkins from the east of the range, and Bassett from the west, hunted at first with furious energy, then spasmodically, then not at all, while Dick lay in a mountain cabin, on the bed made of young trees, and for the second time in his life watched a woman moving in a lean-to kitchen, and was fed by a woman's hand. He forced himself to think of this small panorama of life that moved before him, rather than of himself. The woman was young, and pretty in a slovenly way. The man was much older, and silent. He was of better class than the woman, and underlying his assumption of crudity there were occasional outcroppings of some cultural background. Not then, nor at any subsequent time, did he learn the story, if story there was. He began to see them, however, not so much pioneers as refugees. The cabin was, he thought, a haven to the man, and a prison to the woman. But they were uniformly kind to him, and for weeks he stayed there, slowly readjusting. In his early convalescence he would sit paring potatoes, or watching a cooking-pot for her. As he gained in strength he cut a little firewood. Always he sought something to keep him from thinking. Two incidents always stood out afterwards in his memory of the cabin. One was the first time he saw himself in a mirror. He knew by that time that Bassett's story had been true, and that he was ten years older than he remembered himself to be. He thought he was in a measure prepared. But he saw in the glass a man whose face was lined, and whose hair was streaked with grey. The fact that his beard had grown added to the terrible maturity of the reflection he saw, and he sent the mirror clattering to the ground. The other incident was later, and when he was fairly strong again. The man was caught under a tree he was felling, and badly hurt. During the hour or so that followed, getting the tree cut away, and moving the injured man to the cabin on a wood sledge, Dick had the feeling of helplessness of any layman in an accident. He was solicitous but clumsy. But when they had got the patient into his bed, quite automatically he found himself making an investigation and pronouncing a verdict. Later he was to realize that this was the first peak of submerged memory rising above the flood. At the time all he felt was a great certainty. He must act quickly or the man would not live. And that night, with such instruments as he could extemporize, he operated. There was no time to send to a town. All night after the operation Dick watched by the bedside, the woman moving back and forth restlessly. He got his only knowledge of the story, such as it was, then when she said once, I deserved this, but he didn't. I took him away from his wife. He had to stay on after that, for the woman could not be left alone and he was glad of the respite, willing to drift until he got his bearings. Certain things had come back, more as pictures than realities. Then he saw David clearly, Lucy dimly, Elizabeth not at all. But David came first, David in the buggy with the sagging springs, David's loud voice and portly figure, David steady and upright and gentle as a woman. But there was something wrong about David. He puzzled over that, but he was learning not to try to force things, to let them come to the surface themselves. It was two or three days later that he remembered that David was ill, and was filled with a sickening remorse and anxiety. For the first time he made plans to get away, for whatever happened after that he knew he must see David again. But all his thought led him to an impasse at the time, 
and that impasse was the feeling that he was a criminal and a fugitive, and that he had no right to tie up innocent lives with his. Even a letter to David might incriminate him. Coupled with his determination to surrender, the idea of atonement was strong in him. An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. That had been his father's belief, and well he remembered it. But during the drifting period he thrust it back into that painful niche where he held Beverly and the thing he would not face. That phase of his readjustment, then, when he reached it, was painful and confused. There was the necessity for atonement which involved surrender, and there was the call of David, and the insistent desire to see Beverly again, which was a thing he would not face. Of the three, the last, mixed up as it was with the murder and its expiation, was the strongest. For by the very freshness of his released memories, it was the days before his flight from the ranch that seemed the most recent, and his life with David that was long ago, and blurred in its details as by the passing of infinite time. When Elizabeth finally came back to him, it was as something very gentle and remote, out of the long-forgotten past. Even his image of her was blurred and shadowy. He could not hear the tones of her voice, or remember anything she had said. He could never bring her at will, as he could David, for instance. She only came clearly at night while he slept. Then the guard was down, and there crept into his dreams a small figure, infinitely loving and tender. But as he roused from sleep, she changed gradually into Beverly. It was Beverly's arms he felt around his neck. Nevertheless, he held to Elizabeth more completely than he knew, for the one thing that emerged from his misty recollection of her was that she cared for him. In a world of hate and bitterness, she cared. But she was never real to him as the other woman was real, and he knew that she was lost to him as David was lost. He could never go back to either of them. As time went on, he reached the point of making practical plans. He had lost his pocket-book somewhere, probably during his wanderings afoot, and he had no money. He knew that the obvious course was to go to the nearest settlement and surrender himself, and he played with the thought. But even as he did so, he knew he would not do it. Surrender he would, eventually, but before he did that, he would satisfy a craving that was in some ways like his desire for liquor that morning on the trail a reckless, mad, and irresistible impulse to see Beverly Lucas again. In August he started for the railroad, going on foot and without money, his immediate destination the harvest fields of some distant ranch, his object to earn his train fare to New York. End of chapter 34